Morning, brothers and sisters. Better time to be in the house of the Lord and to be around his word. Very encouraged by this book, 1 John, and by the apostle, the John. Um, as Cody introduced last week, he is a, a man of action and he is a shepherd of the people. And so he is dealing with situations within the church because there are problems, and this letter didn't go just to a church, it went to multiple churches as it was passed around. I don't know about you, but when I have a family member that's on the phone talking to somebody, I'm kind of distractible and I kind of like to um, hear at least part of the conversation. Can anybody confess that that's an issue with you as well? And sometimes the family member will try to go in another room to get away as I'm kind of listening in to hear what might be said. And we know that when we hear a conversation on the phone, we hear one side of it, but we can usually triangulate and figure out, of course, sometimes I'm always asking, who are you talking to? And they're like, you're doing all this. Um, But we usually can figure out who it is and we can usually figure out the general gist of the conversation. That's what we have here in 1 John. We have one side of a conversation. We have John writing to these churches and they're dealing with a problem. And we don't necessarily know all there is about the problem they dealt with, but they were dealing with false prophets, false teachers in the church. And John was concerned about the churches. He was concerned that their confidence in Christ and their security in their salvation was being undercut by false teaching. And so he writes this letter to be sent around to many of the churches because they all dealt with the same type of issues and trying to help put them on a solid footing. Paul talks about this same problem in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15, if you want to turn there quickly. He warns the Corinthians, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds." So within the church, there have always been false teachers, false prophets who seek to undercut the truth of the gospel and to draw away followers after them. Paul is standing on the shore saying goodbye to the elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30. And he tells them, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise. So even with not just coming outside in, but coming up from within the church, there will be men who will rise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Thinking of perverse things, all we have to do is undercut Jesus and what he's done. And we've cut off salvation from a flock. So John is trying to address in this letter false teaching that's going on. And he's trying to at the same time warn the people about the false teaching and clear up their thinking about it. And at the same 
time to comfort the flock and let them know that they are loved by God and that they have security in Christ. John Stott, talking about John's epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John writes, his great emphasis is on the differences between the genuine Christian and the spurious and how to discern between the two. So we're going to get a lesson in 1st John on dealing with what is a real believer and what is not a real believer. And for the people receiving the letter, they're going to be able to tell who is really speaking for God and who is not speaking for God. He goes on, the predominant theme in in these epistles is Christian certainty. That's what Paul, I mean, what John is after is to bring assurance and comfort to those who are putting their trust in Jesus. He is not trying to get everyone to doubt if they're a believer. Now, that may happen if, in reality, you line up more as a person who is a spurious believer than one who is. But that's not, Paul's, that's not John's goal. His goal is to bring certainty to the flock. Any shepherd wants to keep the sheep, what? Calmed down. And John, in his mind, very clearly understands who are the sheep and who are the wolves in his dialogue. And we'll get into that a little bit today. He goes on to point out that the Greek verb gnosko, which means to know by observation or experience, occurs 15 times in these epistles. And the word oida, which means to know by reflection, is used 25 times. The verb phanero, to make known, is used nine times, and the noun once, and the noun parousia, which means confidence, is used four times. So Paul, I keep saying Paul, it's going to be a long message. So John, and you know when you start doing that, it's really hard to break that habit. John really wants the people to know that they belong to Jesus. And he wants them to be certain that they're his. So that they can be useful for his kingdom. If you don't know whether you're in or out, it's going to be hard to be useful for the kingdom of God. And John understands that. And these false teachers were stirring people up. And he was going to deal with it. Same kind of problem was in Colossians, remember? And Paul hammers who Jesus is and hammers how we come to know him and how we walk by faith. So they're dealing with, this is not just a letter written to somebody with nothing going on. He calls them in in the epistles, false prophets, chapter 4, verse 1, antichrists, uh, chapter 2, verse 18, and verse 22, chapter 4, verse 3, He calls them liars in chapter 2, verse 22, and deceivers uh, in in chapter 2, verse 26. He repeatedly implies or states that they are not of God. So we're not talking about confused believers. They are people who do not know God and yet claim they have an experience with God, but are from the devil, chapter 3, verse 8 and 10. They are from the world, chapter 4, verse 5, and they do not know God, 
chapter 3, verse 6, and chapter 4, verse 6. And he tells us in chapter 2, verse 19, that a lot of them have left the church. He says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would not have, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. So these people had stirred the pot. They had shared false teaching. They lived a life that didn't line up with the scriptures. And they didn't love the brothers. And then they left with the church stirred up. Let's look at the three errors more closely of the false teachers, the false believers, if you will. One was doctrine. They denied Jesus' divinity and incarnation, which is what Cody talked about last week. Jesus was not God, and he didn't come in the flesh. And they claimed to know the Father while discounting the Son. You cannot claim to know the Father if you discount the Son. And this is the problem with Islam. There's no way they know God because Jesus is not his Son. Secondly, it was not only a doctrinal problem, it was an ethical problem. They denied that sin existed in their nature and practice, or they said it didn't really matter. And we'll see this as we get into this passage because we're going to see some statements. If we say, we have, we have three if we says in this little passage. Who's if we say? If we say is the false teachers, the false believers. This is what they were holding to. And so John brings out the statement and then he shoots it down. Each one he brings out and then he takes care of them. Third was a relational problem. So there was a doctrinal problem, a moral or ethical problem, and then there was a relational problem. There was no love for the body. In their pride of a new knowledge, they had disdain for the saints who did not agree with them. They had this special knowledge that they'd gotten from God. And for some believers, it caused them to be unstable in their belief. So throughout John... First John, we're going to see him hit these at least three times. He comes through them once and hits them. Doctrine, ethics, and relationship or love for the body. These are going to come around again. These are going to come around a third time to hit these. Okay? Who are the false teachers? There's always much debate since we're on one side of the conversation, right? And he doesn't label who they are. But they were probably people who were Gnostics. The Gnostics had two main characteristics. One was this belief in dualism. The spirit is good and the earth and physical things are evil. Therefore, Jesus coming in the flesh is not a good thing. How can he be God and be in flesh? Because flesh in of itself in their mind was evil. Even though God made the whole creation in six days and he said what? It was good. And when he made man, he said it was what? Very good. Now obviously sin affects everything. 
But their view was the spiritual is good and the, and the physical is bad. And so Jesus, the creator, basically God could not create the world because it's evil. Therefore, there were these spiritual emanations that came out from God and came out from God. And there were enough emanations away from who God was that finally we have someone create the world. But it wasn't God. It was some emanation from God. And that's about as clear as it is to me. It's kind of fuzzy, isn't it? But what we do know, according to their belief, is Jesus wasn't the creator. And Jesus didn't come in the flesh. And one Gnostic, Serenthus, uh, talked about the fact that Jesus was born as a man. And at his baptism, the Christ, or this God part, came down and rested upon him. And he taught and he lived his life. But at the point that he went to the cross, the Christ or the God part left. And Jesus, the man, died. There's a problem with the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that is so, we'll see this in John who you believe Jesus is and what you believe he does determines whether you're a true believer or not. You cannot be a true follower of God if you believe wrongly about who Jesus is and what he does. doesn't matter if we use his name, Jesus. And we have a multitude of cults who have a different Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible. It matters that we believe what God said, Jesus, who he was and what he did. So dualism was the first problem. This idea of the spirit is good, flesh is weak. And that also carries over into their view of how they live life and how they deal with sin. If they see themselves just as a spiritual being, then they really don't see themselves as sinning or So you have this kind of view here where how do we deal with sin? Well, we're ascetic. We we crush our bodies. We do all these things to make ourselves holy. Or we just say we're not really connected to it anymore, so sin really doesn't matter. And we just live however we want to live. So So John's going to deal with that in this passage. The second characteristic was not only dualism, it was illumination. They had this special revelation from God that told them a different message than what the Bible had said, than what the apostles had said. It was a secret knowledge. And naturally, if it's a secret, and you've been told the secret and others haven't, you're proud, and you look down your nose at everybody else. So that produced within them a lack of love for the body of believers. What is the purpose of this book, the first John? It is... That we can be confident in our salvation. This is why he wrote it. He wants us to be confident in our salvation if we enjoy fellowship with God based upon the truth about Jesus Christ. Producing a lifestyle of growing obedience and love. So his desire as he writes this book is that people 
will be confident in their salvation and will enjoy the fellowship they have with God, the Father, and Jesus Christ, his Son. And that as a result of that relationship, it will produce an ever-growing obedience and love for the believers. 1 John 5.13 kind of capsulizes it when it says, when John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Isn't that just an incredible encouragement that God wants you to know that you're his? He doesn't want to live in a mystery. He wants you to know that you're his. And in that confidence that he's, he is, you're his, that you can then go and begin to live obedient and joyful lives. What an incredible thing. So today, that's kind of the background that applies to this particular passage. In chapter, we're going to look at chapter 1, verse 5 through 2.2. And one person has titled this, Let God be true and every man a liar. I like that. A mandate for, glo- for global evangelization. He's going to deal with the salvation of these people, the letter he's writing to. Do you understand? We can't really export what we don't have. Does that make sense? We have to understand what we've been given by God. And as we understand what we've been given by God, then we can proclaim that to the world. And that's the goal here for John, is that they would take it to the world. So there's three things the world needs to know. One, it needs to know what God says about himself. That's verse 5. The world must also know what God says about sin. That's 6 through 10. And then the world must know what God says about Jesus. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. For you to proclaim the gospel, they've got to know what God says about himself, what God says about sin, what God says about Jesus. And this is why the modern gospel is incomplete. Because the gospel goes something like this. Do you want to have a more happy and fulfilled life? Trust Jesus. Notice sin is missing there. We can't just skirt over sin because it is the problem. And that's why when we share the gospel with people, we may not get a great response. We may get an angry response, an upset response, that we help them see their sin and their need for Jesus. But until we see our need for Jesus because of our sin, we can't come to God. We don't come to God for something else than what he has asked us to come to him for. So we have, under the first one, we must tell the world and ourselves what God says about himself. Look at verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him. Who's him? Jesus. Okay? So he's going to share this message with them. And proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. That's the message of who God is. He is light. 
and there's no darkness in him. Another way to translate is God is holy. He is life. Darkness is death. Darkness is what? Sin. God is holy. He is set apart from his creation because of the fall. And in him there is no darkness at all. In Psalm 27.1, we read, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? In 1 John, in John chapter 1, verse 4 through 9, the book of John 1, 4 through 9, he says this, In him, Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus was the light of the world. God is light, in him there's no darkness. Jesus is the light of the world. And he comes to a dark world. A world that will not receive him, but he comes to proclaim the gospel to them. Now, let's go back up real quickly to chapter 1, verse 4. And he's talking about the fact that he wants us to have fellowship together with each other, and he wants us to have fellowship with the Father and with the Son Verse 4, he says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Jesus, the Bible says in Hebrews, for the joy set before him endured the cross. What was this joy that was set before him? What was this joy that they needed to finish writing these things so that their joy could be complete? As you know, we are in the process of preparing for a wedding. And it is a joyful thing. And part of the joy of a wedding is not just the couple getting together and saying their vows and getting married. They probably believe that's completely true, whether anybody shows up or not, but that's important. But it's that everyone else is there as well. And what John is saying here is I'm writing this to make my joy complete. That what? That all of those out there from every people, tongue, tribe, and nation who Christ died for will be at the banquet, will be at the wedding. So we have great joy that we know Jesus. We have great joy in in the forgiveness of sins and being adopted as his children. But for our joy to really be complete, we've got to share it with other people and see them come in as well. That everyone that's meant to be there will be there. So we're sending out the invitations and we're making sure we haven't forgotten anybody. And if we have forgot somebody, I'm really sorry. Um, But we want them to come. And the same heart is in the heart of God. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. 
He came to the people and they rejected him, but he still came to save those. So our joy will be complete as we share that and others join and experience the same thing. A joyous occasion is never meant to be by yourself. It's always meant to be with others. So we're dealing with the believers here in these letters, but we're also dealing with the people they will share with as this thing goes forth and goes on. John Falconer wrote, I have but one candle of life to burn, and I would rather burn it out in the land filled with darkness than in a land flooded with light. And C.T. Studd, missionary, said, Some want to live within the sound of church or the chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Matthew 5 tells us we are the light of the world. And then he goes on to say what? Do not cover it up. But be a light to the world that people may see your good works and glorify God. We are meant to be a light. He tells us in Matthew 5, we are a light. Because Jesus was the true light, all those who are his are lights. And our life is a light put on display for all those around us to see. So this is a very strong evangelistic thrust within the book of 1 John. So we have a message to announce. God is holy. And no one can have fellowship with him if they're in sin. And then we have this truth to continue to affirm to people that God is light, that he is love, that he is true. Luther says there is no darkness in him, not even the slightest. Now, if we know God is light and in him is no darkness, and we know that we've been rescued out of darkness, our goal is to be moving where? Toward the light. Progressively moving toward the light. So the world must know who God is. Secondly, the world must know what God says about sin. Verses 6 through 10. And in verse 6 and 7, we read this. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. One thing I say about John, he doesn't mince any words. You say that you, don't, you, that you walk with Jesus, but you're walking in darkness? You lie and you do not practice the truth. Jesus spoke to them in John 8, verse 12, and it said this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus said, I've come to rescue you out of darkness. To bring you into light. If we say that we have fellowship with him and and we're walking in darkness, we're lying to other people, aren't we? This is what they were facing in the churches. People who were living in sin. A habitual, continuous, and consistent pattern of sin in their lives were saying they knew Jesus. And John says, mm-mm, doesn't work that way. If you know Jesus, 
doesn't mean you're going to be perfect and without sin, but it means what? There's going to be a process taking place and we're going to begin to start moving toward becoming more and more and more and more like him. John 12, 46, he says the same thing again. I have come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. Would not remain in darkness. Jesus doesn't come to save you so that you can just sin. He came to make you like himself. He came to make you light. And even though you still struggle with your sin... You're struggling. People who walk in the darkness don't struggle. That's where they live. That's what they do. This is their pattern. You know, in my family, I think I grew up in a... I think my dad had this problem too. Uh, We have this problem when we sleep that we dream things and they become very vivid to us and then we get up and start trying to walk this thing out and so I remember my dad sometimes would cry out in the night and and, or he'd be up and there's been some some notorious stories about myself and things that I've done um, waking up holding up a wall to make sure it didn't fall on anybody Um, just before I got married I I thought I was under a big semi truck and it was starting to take off and I needed to make sure I got myself turned the other direction so the wheels could miss me pretty smart and so I literally did a a 90 degree turn in the bed in one move, movement <clears throat> so the other night this has been a while back I had this dream and there was I was in danger there was something going on somebody come in the room or something and in my dream the room was a certain way and the room was not um, the room was not the room I normally sleep in so I've obviously got a problem, There's, I'm in danger, either somebody's in the room or somebody's thrown something into the room, a bomb or something, <clears throat> that kind of gets fuzzy after a while, and I'm up, that's dangerous, and I'm trying, I'm trying to find the door that I thought was in the room in my dream, but I kept hitting the wall, and, and finally, finally, I mean it took me probably 15 not 15 minutes. It took me at least a minute or two to finally find something that felt familiar. And then I realized where I was at. When we're in darkness, we can't find our way. The world is in darkness. It can't find its way. And if you are walking in darkness, then you don't know the king of light. You don't know him. Because even though there's some things you struggle with and there's sins you're dealing with, the reality is you know the king and you know he's light and he's illuminated the word to you and he's shown you what's right and what's wrong and it's now clear, you are now oriented and we're going to find out as we get in this passage that we're we're not going to be sinless. But the question is, are we struggling with sin? Struggling with sin is a wonderful thing. It says we're alive. It says we've been changed. Because before we knew Jesus, we didn't struggle. We just walked in the darkness. 
We just swam in the darkness. And we did whatever was in the darkness and it didn't matter to us. But once we knew Jesus, things changed. So the idea of walking is a continuous, consistent pattern in our lives. Now we do have, brothers and sisters, besetting sins that we deal with and have to struggle with in our lives. But the question is, are you taking it to Jesus and confessing? Are you going to Jesus and asking for the power to overcome it? And are you fighting against that sin? Because some people, because they have a besetting sin, and we all have besetting sins, they interpret that to mean I'm walking in darkness, and therefore I don't know Jesus. If you're, if you're struggling with sin, if you're fighting against sin, even if you're not being completely successful, if you're in the fight... You have good reason to hope that God has done a work in you. He goes on in verse 7, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we're walking in Jesus' ways, if we are exuding uh, characteristics of the life of Jesus in our life, even as flickering as those things are, then he says we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus continues to cleanse us from our sin. The blood of Jesus is an amazing thing, isn't it? The way it takes care of us and continues to cleanse us. Can you believe that God saved us knowing that we would continue to sin? What a mercy. We've seen that in Nehemiah, didn't we? Didn't we see in Nehemiah the people would make a declaration, they would turn around, they'd fall into sin. They'd make another declaration, they'd turn around and fall into sin. They'd make another declaration, they'd turn around and fall into sin. What a blessing that we have the blood of Jesus that continues to cleanse us from our sin. It doesn't cause us to treat our sin as flippant and to say, oh, we shouldn't, we shouldn't fight this. No. If we understand what Jesus has done, we're going to continue to fight by the power of his spirit to overcome sin. But it's there. He has made that available to us. Notice here, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Martin Luther said, it's strange that although we preach about the blood and the suffering of Christ every year, yet we see so many sects bursting forth. Oh, the great darkness of the past. If we, but if we cling to the word that has been made known, if we have this treasure, which is the blood of Christ, if we are beset by sins, no harm is done. And he's not saying we don't fight sin. He's saying we have an advocate. We have the blood of Jesus who is cleansing us from our sin. The blood of Christ was not shed for the devil or the angels. It was shed for sinners. Accordingly, when I, when I feel sin, why should I despair? And why should I not believe that it has been forgiven? For the blood of Christ ha, um, ha, washes sins away. The main thing is that we cling simply to the word then this is no trouble. What's he saying here? You and I are going to sin. 
We do it every day in thought, word, deed, motive. Praise God, we have the blood of Jesus. And he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Don't, don't go on the trip of saying, well, you know, once I get better, then I'll come to Jesus. No, mm -mm. you only get better when you come to Jesus. He is there, his sacrifice is for you. Remember the Lord's table? Do this as often as you eat it. Do this as often as you drink it. And what? Remembrance of me. Because I love you. And the blood of Jesus doesn't cause us to treat sin lightly. But the reality, brothers and sisters, is that we are a result of the fall. And the reality is that we've been given a new nature in Christ. And the reality is he has not obliterated the old nature and so we are in a war, as Wolfie talked about this morning, within ourselves always to deal with our sin. And we are going to sin. But we have an advocate. We have Jesus there who has died for our sins and forgiven them. Are you thankful for that? Like you should be? Are we thankful that his blood was shed once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God? And to continue to cleanse us from sin. When you sin, what do you do? Do you re... re... Um, re-energize yourself to be more obedient you should do that but first you should do what run to Jesus confess your sin and we'll get to that here as we go along second so do not we're talking about do not lie to others that I have I have walk in fellowship and, I, and but yet I'm in darkness secondly don't lie to yourself if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us there were people in this false religion who were saying, we don't sin. We don't sin. Therefore, we don't need who? Jesus. We don't need Jesus. He says, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There are people today who teach that you can go a day or a week or a month without sin. It's called perfectionism. And according to this scripture, they deceive themselves. Are you really telling me that every action you took in a particular day was all God-directed? And all for his glory. And everything that you did was for him and for his glory. And that there was no other motivation in it at all for you. Remember the rich young ruler? He thought he had done what? Kept the commandments, didn't he? I have kept them all. The Pharisees thought they kept them all because they kept them outwardly, remember? But Jesus got down to the heart issue. Well, you say you haven't, 
You know, you haven't committed adultery, but have you lusted after a woman? Or you say you've not murdered, but have you had anger in your heart towards someone else? What Jesus is saying there is, guess what? Even if you're able to get an outward righteousness going on, we still have our heart that we're dealing with. Spurgeon says, the idea of having no sin is a delusion. You are altogether deceived if you say so. The truth is not in you. You have not seen things in the true light. You must have shut your eyes to the high requirements of the law. You must be a stranger to your own heart. You must be blind to your own conduct every day. And you must have forgotten to search your thoughts and to weigh your motives. Or you would have detected the presence of sin. He who cannot find water in the sea is not more foolish than the man who cannot perceive sin in his members. So I'll read that one again. He who cannot find water in the sea is not more foolish than the man who cannot perceive sin in his own members. As the salt flavors every drop of the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. A lot of us focus just on sin of actions. The fall affected us completely. It affected us to the point that we would have never trusted Jesus. Ever. Ever. That's why the work of the Spirit is so wonderful, is that it quickens us, it makes us alive, it helps us to open our eyes and see our sin, and to see Jesus, and to see the hope that's there. That's the work of the Spirit. No person, no person can generate that on their own energy. It's the work of God in their lives. Then our favorite verse, friends, verse 9 If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if we claim we have no sin, we are what? We deceived ourselves and the truth is not in us. He says, I've made provision for you. If you'll confess your sin, I am faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Don't argue with him. Confession is agreement, right? Lord, I'm a sinner. Today, when I did this or that or whatever I thought, that was sin. Please forgive me. Thank you that Jesus died to cover over this sin. What a great promise. And it's a promise that's meant to be used over and over and over and over and over until you are sick of your sin. And as we get older, we're going to be sicker and sicker of our sin, and we long for what? Jesus to come. Come, Lord Jesus. Set me free from the results of the fall. At the same time, even though there's still sin, we, are making, we should, according to the scripture, be growing in obedience and growing in love. We're not fighting a losing battle. 
we are making progress by God's grace, not by our own strength, but by the power of God. We're making progress. We're becoming more and more and more like Christ. Isn't that great? It's amazing. However, we don't completely get rid of sin. It's kind of like weeding the yard. We never get all the weeds out. We may make great progress and they come back again. We keep working it and working it and working it. All of us here are doing that. If I've given you the impression that I'm not a sinner, that I don't have to go and practice um, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that's not true. Bob has to. Cody has to. The men here, the women here, the children here. All of us, even though we've been saved by God, and we are better off than we ever were before, and we're making progress toward righteousness and toward holiness, that's a long road. That's a long road. And we need to be there to encourage each other to continue to go to God and confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And as we do that, and as we gain his grace, as he gives us his grace, we fight the fight again. And we make progress. Chuck Swindoll years ago wrote a little book called Three Steps Forward, Two Steps Back. That's a pretty good way of describing the Christian life. Three steps forward, two steps back. Is it the kind of progress you want to make? No, I want to go five steps forward, ten steps forward, fifteen steps forward. But in our life, a lot of it is what? Three steps forward, two steps back. But, but if we do three steps forward, two steps back, what happens? We make progress. We are moving. We are moving more and more in to the image of his son by God's grace. If we tell God that we don't sin, then we make him out to be a liar. That's verse 10. If we say that we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. God says that all people are what? Sinners. All people need Jesus. All people will go to hell without Jesus. God is true and every other man is a what? Liar. So the world must know what God says about himself. He must know what he says about sin and we have to tell them. And thirdly, and that means we tell them that we are in the fight with sin. Let's not give them the impression that we have arrived. But give them the impression we are gaining victory day by day. But it's a long, lifelong battle. Finally, the world must know what God says about Jesus. Verses 1 and 2. Because the reality is, even though we're not sinless, we need to be seen as sinless, don't we? Because sin is a real problem. God does not associate with sin. Therefore, there had to be a remedy to deal with our sin. He just doesn't say, oh, just come on in and I forgive you because I'm just a caring person, caring God, and, and, I, and there's no cost for what you've done. He does not say that. Your sin must be punished. If you don't pay the price of sin, somebody else does. 
and that happens to be my son. Your sin was paid for. That's why it's forgiven. And the price was high. The shed blood of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, and we know they will, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Wow. Notice here two things. One, Jesus is our advocate. He is our advocate. Have you ever had an advocate? Have you ever had anybody stand for you and speak on your behalf? Have you ever had a resume and somebody wrote you a nice letter of recommendation? They were being a what? An advocate for you. When we lived in Fort Worth, we went to the same church as Fran Childs, who was the wife of Eddie Childs, who was at one time the owner of the Texas Rangers. And it was great. She would just, after church, say, hey, how many of y'all want to go to the game today? Got my hand up, you know. And we would go, and we'd have these special VIP parking spots, and we would go up these escalators, and there'd be these people there who were security. They wanted to know why we're on this escalator and elevator and why we're going to this particular floor. And we say, hey, we're friends of Fran, Fran Childs. They open the door. We're so glad to have you. Come on in. And we go here to this incredible suite. And you open the windows, and there's the, there's the, the playing field right there. And you could sit out and watch the game for a while. And then magically food just showed up. You know, barbecue chicken, drumsticks and all kinds of stuff. She was an advocate for us. She took us someplace we never could have gotten on our own. We have a better advocate. Jesus Christ who has brought us into the family of God and has forgiven us of our sin. In the Chronicles of Narnia, one of the Penvinci children asked the great Lion King Aslan, is he safe? About, about Aslan, is he safe? The answer is no, but he is good. Jesus is not safe. If you're still in your sin and you're rejecting him, he is not safe. But if you have taken his promise to confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all your unrighteousness. We read a couple of weeks back about when Christ returns and how the kings of the earth will beg the mountains to fall upon them. You don't want to face Jesus without the blood. You don't want to face Jesus without him being your advocate. Jesus faced the Father and the wrath of the Father for you and for me. He is the advocate. 
This word advocate means helper. It's used mostly of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside. But in this passage, Jesus is our helper. And he is our atonement. He's our advocate, and he is the one who has paid for it. He's our atonement. Obviously, Jesus and what he's done is not appreciated by everyone. Dolores Williams, who's a feminist theologian, has made this comment, there's nothing divine in the blood of the cross. Another theologian, Episcopal Bishop John Sponge, says, neither do I want a God who would kill his own son. And finally, uh, Steve Chalk, who wrote a book called The Lost Message of Jesus, and I would say for Steve, it's still lost. The biblical understanding of the cross is a form of cosmic child abuse. A vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. A twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. Not everybody rejoices in Jesus. Not everybody appreciates what Christ has done. But the cross is where God's holiness and his love meet. No sin has been pardoned apart from the shed blood of Jesus Christ. No sin will be pardoned apart from that or for the people paying for that themselves. In John chapter 2, verse 2, we read this. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This word, propitiation, is a really important word. We see it in Romans 3.25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. Hebrews 2.17, therefore he made, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Notice that. He's dying for the human race. He has to be made like his brothers in every respect. He has to be human. This is the problem with the Gnostic heresy. He wasn't human. He had to be human. And it's worth fighting for his humanity. That's the whole Nicene, the Nicene Council was. He is all God and he's all man and we don't understand it, but he's both. That's important for us to hold on to. So that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 1 John 4.10 In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What's propitiation mean? It means satisfaction. It means that when he bled on the cross and laid down his life, and he said it was finished. He was saying the truth. God is satisfied. My sacrifice satisfied the wrath of God for all who believe in me. It is finished. 
Praise God, it's finished. Do you believe it's finished? Is he your advocate? Is he your atonement? Is he the one you run to? Or do you still try to make sure you get yourself looking a little better before you run to him? Run to him, receive his forgiveness, and he will give you the grace to walk a new life. Run to him. Some people wanted to sing the hymn uh, in Christ alone. But they didn't like the part where it talks about how God poured out his wrath on Christ in the song. They wanted that removed from the song. We don't like the idea of blood. We don't like the idea of wrath. There is wrath. Colossians says, because of these sins, the wrath of God is coming. And Jesus wasn't, the worst part of the crucifixion wasn't just him being crucified. It was that he received the wrath of God for your sin and for mine. And he did not abuse his son. His son willingly died. And we see that's the beautiful part about the garden scene. If nothing else we see in the garden, he willingly went for you and for me. And he asked a very important question in the garden. If it's possible, is there another, is there not, is there another, way, another way to do this? There is no other way. In the mind of God, this was the only way that you and I would be forgiven was that Christ died for us. May that become more and more real to you and I that we have an advocate, that we have an atonement, that we're not sinless, that that we're walking in light. And even walking in light, we're going to sin But he he expects us to go to him every time and confess our sin. And that he'll be faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, take advantage of the blood of Jesus. Rejoice that he died for you. And at the cross, at the cross, there is forgiveness. You're part of his family. He loves you. And Christ took your wrath for your sin. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And we stand amazed. that you are our advocate. Father, I pray that you would help us to do what this hymn said on page 199, Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. 
Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for all our race. His blood atoned for all our race. And sprinkles now the throne of grace. Father, I thank you for what you've given us. May we understand it more and more as we live for you by your grace. And Father, may we export it to the nations. May we tell those that we come in contact with about this incredible advocate, this incredible atonement. And as the Lord's Supper tells us, and to proclaim Christ's death until he comes. Lord Jesus, we proclaim your death because it is the only way that we are made righteous in your sight. It's the only way we're made sinless in your sight. And Lord, we know the reality of sin within us, but in your sight, because of what Jesus has done and the great exchange between his righteousness and our sin, we stand forgiven and righteous. Oh, Father, what a blessing that is. The Apostle John tells us that he writes these things so that we may not sin. How can we treat sin lightly? When Jesus did all this to rid us of sin, God forbid that we would treat sin lightly. May we deal with it rightly. May we go to Jesus for forgiveness. May we go to him for grace to fight the fight. And every time we go, may we know that we're loved and that he took our wrath. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.